I thought I'd uh, start just by uh, giving a brief introduction of myself. Uh, I uh, do live in Berkeley, so not bad traffic coming here. And I think I've uh, come to a version of this sitting group uh, since I came to Berkeley, which was over 25 years ago. And so I knew, like many of you, I knew James when he was called Jamie. (laughs) And I've also, I've taught uh, a few times with Kate. And so uh, it's good to be here. I I seem to uh, come here, even though I'm local, I come here about every uh, year or two. That's good. It's good to be here. And uh, along with James, I'm, I'm a teacher at Spirit Rock, and I also teach uh, at the East Bay Meditation Center, you know, in downtown Oakland, and have been uh, practicing since I was in my uh, um, 20s, so like early 20s, so uh, about 40 years, about 40 years of practice, and um, have been teaching almost from the beginning. I had a mentor and I was asked after two years of practice to do some teaching. And I asked him, is this okay? And he said, okay, it's okay. So I've been teaching, I guess, for 38 years in some way, some form, not kind of modestly at the beginning. And um, I, I often think of my own interest in, in uh, three areas. You know, I've had a, strong interest in uh, traditional practice, Uh, not just Buddhist tradition, but other traditions as well. And I've, like James and Kate, I've been particularly grounded in the uh, Theravada tradition coming out of Burma and Thailand. I've spent time at monasteries in Thailand. And I've also been very influenced by uh, Tibetan tradition. I've been studying Tibetan tradition in different ways for over 15 years, and it's been, that's been also quite important for me. And also have been very influenced by other traditions. Uh, you know, my own ancestry is Jewish, and I have been um, influenced by Jewish mystical traditions, and for a year lived in a kind of a Hasidic, uh, kind of a, um, I don't know, kind of a hippie Hasidic house. So we had, uh, you know, every Friday night we had uh, dancing and, you know, invocation of good spirits through um, uh, marijuana and alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) Quite regularly with dancing. And it was, I I learned from that. And have also been uh, influenced by Christian contemplative tradition and lived uh, in Kentucky for four years. Uh, I was teaching at the University of Kentucky and uh, went out to the Abbey of Gethsemane where Thomas Merton was a monk uh, many, many times. I was part of a group there. went out there about every six weeks and I still teach in Kentucky every year. And so I, uh, I go back to the monastery every year and have, you know, have a, you know, kind of the contemporary version of Merton, a little more modest, but name uh, Brother Paul Quinon is I visit with him every year. So that's been important. And also, I should say, uh, connecting with indigenous traditions has also been important. For a lot of years, I co-taught the uh, meditation and sweat lodge gatherings at Spirit Rock with, uh, with a native elder. And... Uh, so that's been important too. And I've been invited into communities in, in Northern California and also British Columbia by, by uh, indigenous friends. That's been important as well. So connecting with a tradition, very crucial. But I've also had an interest in seeing how do we make this practice real in this culture at this time. And so I've been interested in um, the connection between psychology and uh, mindfulness, meditation, probably like many of you. And uh, I teach regularly on the theme of working with the judgmental mind. Does anyone still have some of that? Okay. Maybe I should have talked about that tonight. You know, I'm going to 
talk about equanimity. So, um, and so that's been, and I'm working on a book on that theme, and teach retreats on that theme as well, and also teach a lot on uh, speech and communication. Actually, teaching a Berkeley retreat uh, next week, non-residential six-day retreat on mindful communication with with Oren Sofer. He, I think, he comes here occasionally, and uh, um, right in Berkeley. But uh, right now, I'm I'm well, both happy and sorry to say that there's just a waiting list. The retreat's full, but if you're interested, you could be on the waiting list. Probably some chance be an opening. So we do that typically once or twice a year. And then uh, I'm very interested in daily life practice. And then thirdly, I have been interested for a long time, probably because I was initially, before I got into meditation, I was more of an activist. And so I've been very interested in the intersection of working in the world and sometimes doing social change work and how that connects with our inner practice. And, you know, have done a lot of training programs, led a lot of training programs on that through Buddhist Peace Fellowship and Spirit Rock and elsewhere. And, and as I mentioned, I have a book on that. So that's kind of broad interest. Uh, and how, you know, it's really, I've really had a really strong interest in saying how can all the parts of our lives be understood as practice? Meaning that we have a way of working skillfully with whatever comes up in every part of our life. Okay. So uh, let that be, that'll be my introduction. And then as I, me- I have mentioned a few times, I thought I'd uh, talk uh, this evening on the theme of equanimity, and we did some some uh, brief practices, or there was some brief uh, guidance on some ways of practicing with equanimity. And so I'll talk generally uh, about the nature of equanimity, uh, give some examples, talk about some of the challenges, and... Uh, and then have some time for discussion. So really, mostly just about the nature of equanimity, why it's important, and what are some of the challenges or difficulties of equanimity. Now, I should just start by saying that equanimity is not an ordinary English word. We, I hard, probably hardly heard it before I heard that there was a Buddhist teaching that was translated as equanimity, right? And we don't use it too much. It generally, in the in the uh, original language, the word is upeka, and um, it is typically translated as balance. So, it, uh, essentially, what equanimity means is having some degree of balance with whatever comes up in our experience. That's a very uh, beautiful and powerful quality. Can I have balance? with what comes up. Of course, I can have balance with things that are relatively easy or when things are going well or when I'm present or, or mindful. But can I have balance when something bothers me? Can I have balance with anger? Can I have balance when I have a difficult conversation with someone in the midst of it and afterwards? Can I have balance reading the news? You know, and what does that even mean? What does it mean to have balance? You know, it's, it's a, it can be a confusing area because what does it mean to have balance? Does it mean that I'm kind of indifferent or don't care? What does it mean to have balance when you hear some of the news? When you hear, you know, maybe some of you, you hear if you're from one political perspective and you hear the news that there were some tweets about not having transgender people in the military. What does it mean to have equanimity with that? Or what, it is, what does it mean to have equanimity if uh, 20 or 30 million people will lose health care? What does that mean? You know, or, or if you're from the different perspective, what does it mean if your uh, wish to see the Affordable Care Act abolished isn't making good progress? You know, how do you have balance with that if you're from the other perspective? Or maybe how do you have balance if you see frequently, for example, in the New York Times, articles on how something that the president says isn't really true? 
Right? How do you have balance with that if you're from that perspective? You might be quite irritated. So what does equanimity mean? Or what does it mean when, you know, someone close to you has died? What does that mean? Is it even valuable? You know, what's the, you know, what's its nature? So you see, on the, on the surface, it can, it can seem both uh, valuable and potentially confusing, right? right? And, and sort of a, a preview is that we can be confused by equanimity and think that it means that we kind of remove ourselves a little bit from experience and kind of stand back a little bit or have some distance. And uh, traditionally, it's said that the distorted version of equanimity is indifference. It can kind of look like we're really balanced, but it's because we're maybe emotionally removed. And that's not what we're talking about. So I'll come back to that and try to help us sort out those issues because really, it's really, um, can be confusing. And I think for all of us, you know, if we're interested in meditation and there's a certain amount of calm and peacefulness, we can get attached to that and think that we should have that calm and peacefulness even when things are difficult. And if I'm not calm and peaceful, I have a problem, you know, and we can get confused by it and actually think that equanimity means staying aloof and not acting. It doesn't mean either of those. It actually means really having, combining balance with caring, which is not easy. Or, and it means also being responsive. We sometimes say, uh, I and colleagues, we sometimes say that the essence of equanimity is like a wise old grandmother who has seen everything. Maybe, maybe we have quite a few wise old grandmothers right here. And we can, <laughs> we can hear from them later. You know, so, uh, but it can be like a wise old grandmother who has basically seen everything, so really doesn't get phased, right? Doesn't get upset, but still cares very much. That's, I think that's a helpful image for what equanimity is. Has seen everything under the sun. Something can happen. Oh yeah, I've seen that, <laughs> right? And yet stays balanced, stays clear, and the heart's open. So that's, that's what we're pointing to with equanimity. So I thought I'd read, I, I once wrote a poem about equanimity, and I thought I'd uh, read that to you, okay? It's a short one. Well, here it is. Remain in equanimity, says the great teacher. Not so easy, though, for the mind to stand still. It jumps around, it shoots arrows. It seeks the strange refuge of reactive movement towards what it wants and away from what it doesn't want. So we train in seeing the jumping, seeing the shooting, seeing the reacting, Mindfulness of jumping does not jump. Mindfulness of shooting does not shoot. Mindfulness of reacting does not react. Isn't that interesting? Equanimity starts with the the one moment of awareness and ends with the awareness of the one and many moments. Let me start always again and remain at least a while in equanimity with the easy and the hard and the in-between, with my body present, equanimity as more than a good idea, with my caring heart not left aside by my would-be equanimity, with my action not left behind still caught in indifference, by my would-be equanimity still caught clinging to the peace or stillness or understanding of equanimity with my response to the suffering of our world not left behind, my my would-be equanimity still caught in complacency or distance or privilege while thinking of equanimity. Balance, yet no one, no part of my life left behind. All my days are in balance. So I was partly thinking of equanimity because I just actually came just a little while ago 
from a part of the world that is uh, been in difficulty for some time. I actually came from just recently from five weeks in uh, Israel and visiting the Palestinian territories, teaching there, and also traveling and visiting. And, you know, equanimity in a deep way is deeply needed there. And um, I also tried to cultivate equanimity. When I was there, there was the um, final game of the NBA Finals. So I woke up, it's a 10-hour difference, I woke up at 4 or 4.30 one morning and watched the last part of, I think the last half of the last game on YouTube. And I, I brought, actually, anyone interested, this isn't really, I'm kind of just in a um, not fully coherent way weaving this into my talk on equanimity. But this is the, uh, anyone wants to look, this is the uh, Tel Aviv newspaper about the uh, um, championship by the the Warriors, if anyone wants to see a (laughs) Hebrew newspaper. So, okay. So, did did anyone have equanimity during the uh, NBA Finals? Of course, not everyone's interested, I know that. But, but, okay. So, um, so again, the, the word is upeka. It generally means balance. And, it uh, actually literally means to see with patience. To really be there, have balance, and see with patience. And that really gets at the nature of equanimity. In the teachings, equanimity is seen as a very, very advanced state, actually, a very deep state. It's Some of you know that it's mentioned quite a number of times in the traditional list of qualities. It's mentioned in the seven factors of awakening. You probably have had talks on that. It's the last one. It's mentioned, uh, it's mentioned in the list of the Brahma-vihara. It's the last one. The Brahma-vihara are the different qualities of the heart, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. It's mentioned in the list of the... the um, basically the core virtues or values that should be developed uh, called the paramis, translated as the, usually as the perfections or the basic virtues, and it's the last one. So it's, you can see, it's always listed last. Some people think that it's actually very close to liberation if you can stay in equanimity. So it's a very beautiful, powerful state. I've been... Um, kind of in love with equanimity for a long time. That's why I thought I'd talk about it because I, I really enjoy talking about it. And uh, I also, you know, have thought a lot about it in relationship to my father who died about 10 years ago. And I think my father really manifested quite a lot of equanimity. He was, um, he couldn't get into the college that he wanted and that was right at the time of World War II. And so he entered the military and was in the war for six years. And he saw a lot of his friends die, you know, and he was with that. And he, um, after he went to college, he wanted to go to medical school. But some of you may know at that time, there were quotas against people of Jewish ancestry. He could not go to medical school because of these quotas. And those quotas, some of you know, lasted until the 1960s. Pretty shameful. Not many people know that history, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. There were quotas. There weren't bans. They said, we, don't, we like people who are smart, who are Jewish, but only up to a certain extent. <laughs> and so there were quotas. And my father did not go to medical school for that reason. You know? And uh, he developed also uh, psoriasis probably when he was in his 30s, which is like you know, red scales all over his body. He kept a lot of balance. He also, when he was about 50, went blind, probably from uh, improperly administered uh, research when he was working with the government as a chemist. And so he went blind and, uh, you know, lived the last 
quite a number of years of his life uh, legally blind. And also, when he was just a little bit older, he developed cancer. Uh, You see, there's a lot there, way more than I or maybe any of us have experienced. And he kept a certain kind of balance that was there. You know, there's not perfect equanimity, but there was a lot there. And I always think of him in terms of, his name is Simon Rothberg. And he did okay even not going to medical school. He, he became a biochemist and a scientific researcher you know, uh, with the uh, National Institutes of Health in uh, the D.C. area. That's where I grew up. And so I think, I think about him. And, um, and so I've really uh, loved this quality of equanimity. And um, when I was working on the book uh, on the connection of inner work and... Uh, being in the world, social service, social change work, equanimity was a really uh, interesting topic. And I asked people, I interviewed about 15 spiritually grounded activists. I asked almost all of them, what did equanimity mean for them? And I'll I'll maybe bring out some of what they said because it was really, really interesting. And if you think of some of the people who are, you know, like right in the middle of really hard stuff, think of someone like, Dr. King, he had a lot of equanimity. You think of him. You think of him, he could be really centered and balanced in really hard stuff, right? And you think of other people, maybe Gandhi, Dorothy Day, maybe some people you know. Some of the people we most admire, maybe think of Nelson Mandela, 27 years in prison. Kept his center, didn't he? Something there. And so that's equanimity. So um, some of the qualities of equanimity. Uh, the first one I thought of was the, the traditional understanding, it's balance, that we can really learn to be balanced with what comes up. And I think this is very much a fruit of our practice. In other words, uh, as we practice, as we meditate, as we bring it into our daily lives, we sometimes have difficult things occur and we learn how to be with what's difficult. We see it at first, we're kind of unbalanced with it. You know, we have irritation, we have anger, we have anxiety, you know, and at first it throws us off. But if we bring the mindfulness to it, this is really one of the ways that our practice works in a beautiful way. When you can actually be mindful of what's difficult, first of all, it starts to be less difficult. And then you can have balance with it with without as much reactivity, you know? So you can actually learn to be with anxiety or fear without reacting. You can think of a mountain climber, right? A mountain climber still has fear, you know, or maybe you think of yourself when you've done something difficult, even a little dangerous. The fear is actually healthy to have some fear, but the mountain climber doesn't get unbalanced by the fear and really just lets it be there, right? As far as you can imagine that. And that's what we do. We learn uh, really with our meditation, with our lives. Part of what happens is that over time, we get to hang out with difficult stuff, also with beautiful states, you know, with calm, peacefulness, bliss. But part of the practice is to hang out with difficult states. And that's actually how equanimity is born. You know, you hang out with fear for, you know, off and on for a while. And fear becomes familiar and you can learn to be with it without reacting so much. You learn to be with anger. You learn to sit with it in your meditations. You watch irritation. You watch anger. And you learn to be with it. And when it comes up, you're more balanced. Oh, anger. There's uh, a teacher that probably Kate and James quote from. He has a very famous kind of gesture, Achan Sameto you know, who's an American-born monk in the Thai forest tradition, he, has, he often has this phrase, he talks about something, and he says, oh, yes, it's like this. He says, okay, irritation, oh, it's like this. Fear, it's like this. And we develop that with the whole repertoire of difficult stuff. And that's a fruit of our practice, you know, and I know for myself, especially doing retreats, my retreats, especially my first ones, were sort of on some of them were wonderful, blissful, deep in understanding, peace. I don't ever want to leave my retreat. 
wonderful, I'm sold, I'm in it for life, etc. Right? And then others were not that way. <laughs> others were uh, feeling anxiety or fear. I've had retreats where I felt fear for most of 10 days. Luckily, not overly intense, but it was there. And I, I was just present with it, mindful with it. And after doing that, fear was never the same. And for whatever reason, I've had retreats that are like that. I had one retreat where I was angry for uh, 10 days in a row, about 18 hours a day. And I learned, and again, it was, for whatever reason, it was in the workable range. It wasn't too much. Sometimes these things are too much and you can't really be mindful of them. But sometimes they're there and you can be mindful. And I learned, and I, anger was never the same. And I explored anger and I learned amazing things. I learned all the variety of it and so forth. So uh, I think if we stay with our own minds long enough, these things happen. And this is how equanimity gets felt because anger, fear, I know them. You know, they don't, they don't scare me. It's like there's a children's book called The Monster That Grew Smaller, <laughs> which is basically the idea as the child looks at the monster and gets closer, think of fear. As you look more at it and are willing to look at it, it gets smaller. It doesn't scare you in the same way. So this is the wonderful children's book where they learn that the monster that grew smaller, because you actually look at it. As you look at it, it gets smaller and smaller until the monster gets really small and just turns into a little puppy dog. <laughs> right? And so essentially, I, I wouldn't say our practice is exactly like that, but it's, it's something like that. So equanimity develops by hanging out with, what's, with what initially takes us away from equanimity. That's how it works. And so when you have something difficult happen, don't say, oh, shucks, or use some more colloquial language. And, but really say, oh, a chance to develop equanimity. Because that's really actually what's happening. And you can do that. So balance is this really important uh, quality of equanimity. Another one is a certain evenness. We can really uh, be with, uh, increasingly, with whatever comes up, in an even-handed way, you know, without uh, reacting so much. And uh, for me, there, I, I've always liked some um, Japanese haiku, which express this. So listen for, to these two haiku as expressions of equanimity, okay? See if you can hear them, and I'll, I'll ask, to ask you to tell me why there's equanimity. Here's the first one. This is from Basho, you know, the famous haiku writer from the 18th century, Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. I identify that as an equanimity haiku. <laughs> okay, why? Okay, it was quick. So you may, hopefully you weren't daydreaming during that, you know, haiku are very quick, like what, 17 syllables. So I'll say it one more time. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. So why is that equanimity? What? Yeah, he's just, there, there's, he's not saying, oh, why did I get so close to the horse? He's not blaming himself. There's no reaction, right? Just really pretty much with the situation with the uh, pissing horse, right? Okay, here's another one. This is also involves fleas. I'm not sure, but maybe they had a lot of fleas in 18th century Japan. I'm not sure. But this one also is about fleas. This is from Isa, also one of the great haiku writers. And he's about to um, um, go on a, a trip to Matsushima, which is a, a very, I think it's a beautiful mountain in Japan. Okay, now you fleas. You shall see Matsushima. <laughs> Off we go. <laughs> okay, so, and one more. This is also Isa. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. Okay, so, okay, I, I interpret these as equanimity haiku, okay? So, another quality of um, equanimity is uh, unshakability. As equanimity gets strong, 
It's like that, that wise grandmother. Nothing's going to bother you. Nothing shakes you. You can you keep your center, right? Um, as the equanimity gets stronger. And um, you can really uh, stay with different phenomena. There's, there's a teaching, some of you know, uh, traditional teaching from the Buddha that really points to how we can, uh, actually a concrete way, another way to practice with equanimity. The first way that I suggested is really study when you get reactive and lose it and study those carefully. And as you do that, you'll become more equanimous and those will be, you'll become more and more familiar with it. Uh, another way of doing that is to work with a teaching called the eight worldly winds or the eight worldly conditions. And these are the eight ways that we lose balance. And they are, some of you probably know these, these are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame, right? Uh, A lot of those will knock us around, right? So if you look out for when you get knocked around by praise or blame, and of course the positive ones are more subtle, right? You'll get knocked around by blame, by praise, but you'll think, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> but and it's more the negative ones that more obviously kind of knock us off our center. So think of pray, uh, blame or loss or pain or someone saying something negative about you. And this is it's very strong, isn't it? I think particularly probably uh, blame. It's a very strong one. I know that from teaching on judgment. So... I was thinking of an example where I was once uh, organized a summer uh, workshop or a summer institute for seven days with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And we had about 100 people come. It was seven days. Midway through, I was one of the organizers and we had a kind of a little feedback form. We asked people, how's it going? And we got forms from 100 people and like 95 of them were really positive and five of them were complaining. And I and all of the organizers, we zeroed in on those five and got preoccupied by those five, right? Does anyone relate to that? This is, this is what the psychologists call negativity bias, <laughs> right? And so uh, that's, a, that's a way that you can, again, develop your equanimity by looking out for those eight. Again, pleasure and pain, Gain and loss, fame and disrepute. You can use different words for that. And then praise and blame. Look out for those in your daily life and you'll develop equanimity. It's a very good way to, uh, to do that. Another, I think, part of equanimity that gets developed is that it, it, it really brings in the wisdom factor. So part of equanimity is to have understanding. And so you have a difficult situation. If you call forth, how can I really understand what's happened? Bring, it, bring out your wisdom. And this is a quality of equanimity. Equanimity, like when I talked to the people who were spiritually grounded activists, they talked about, uh, they had um, expressions of equanimity that are really rooted in understanding. A lot of them tried to have the long view, right? They wanted to have a long perspective. So I remember one person, uh, Dr. Aryaratni from Sri Lanka, when I talked with him, uh, he had this very wonderful way of talking about equanimity in a few ways. One of them was that he says, I always look from every experience I have, I look for learning and understanding. And even sometimes when other people think I fail, I don't think I ever fail because as long as I have the perspective of learning, even when I seem to quote unquote fail, I learn something. He said, in that way, I never really fail. Even when outwardly it looks like something didn't work because I always learn something. If you have that perspective, um, he said, there's no such thing as failure. Even in failure, I succeed. That's interesting, isn't it? He also, um, in dealing with the issues of Sri Lanka, he said, it's really important to have a long-term perspective. The problems in Sri Lanka took 500 years to develop were connected with colonialism and all sorts of phenomena 
So we should have a 500-year plan for how we remedy the problems, right? Not looking for, okay, just got to deal with everything in a year, right, or whatever. And so he actually put on his website a 500-year plan for Sri Lanka. Isn't that interesting? You know, other people I talked to said, can you really understand the causes and conditions? Sometimes the causes and conditions are not there for what you want to have happen, happen. Can you know that? You know, and not just be hard on yourself. And so the understanding dimension is really, really crucial. Can I really um, kind of see the big picture, really? That can be really helpful. Or maybe we have a difficulty with another person. Can I have empathy and understand where that person's at? Can I understand the other person's uh, point of view if I have a difficulty with someone? Again, many of us, I'm sure, do that. There is a, you know, I think there, there's a beautiful quotation some of you know from Longfellow, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but it goes something like, basically, the more we know about someone's life, the more we know about someone with whom we've had difficulty, we will find in that person's life more than enough difficulty and sorrow to dispel all enmity, all hostility if we really know someone and we can really, this is bringing out also the way that uh, equanimity can also be connected with compassion. I think it's also connected with faith, that there's a way that as we keep that center of balance, we have increasing faith or confidence that everything is workable. And this is really, again, I think a fruit of our practice. We learn more and more that everything is workable. And especially we know that when we've, hung out with difficulties. And we've seen, oh, this threw me for a loop, but ultimately I can be with a difficult interaction. I can be with disappointment. I can be with grief. I can be with anger. I can be with irritation. I can be with anxiety. I can be with fear. Builds a lot of confidence that I can be increasingly with whatever comes up. So there's an element that, you can see why it's a mature quality, right? You can see why this is a very mature quality, even we could say advanced, because of all these aspects, balance and understanding, faith, and so forth. Um, I think it's very important also to say that um, equanimity is connected with responsiveness and action. You know, that again, and, and this is really getting, I'm, I'll get here into some of the challenges, further into some of the challenges of equanimity. Some of the challenges of equanimity are just being with the difficult stuff, right? That's hard. It's hard to be with what I just named. You know, that's not easy. That's How many of you came into meditation with the promise that you would just discover calm, peace, and good vibes? Anyone sign up for that initially? I certainly did. I certainly did. When I heard the teachers talking about difficulties or being with that, I thought that was for other people. <laughs> Less fortunate than me. <laughs> you know, but I, I signed up for bliss, calm, peace, a little bit of wisdom. <laughs> right? And so, yeah, just practicing equanimity and you hear, okay, you know, being with the hard stuff is a big part of practice. Well, I didn't sign up for that. Right, so, so um, again, there's a way that we can misunderstand equanimity if we really like some of these beautiful qualities, and we can have uh, a sense that the that equanimity is about really staying balanced all the time, and so we can actually not be so open to reactivity or losing it or staying with it, and we actually can develop, and I think this is a danger of meditation, we can get somewhat attached to the calm or the peacefulness or the clear seeing. And when something difficult comes, we can kind of scoot it aside and not really want to deal with it. And this is one of the traditional, the traditional danger for developing equanimity was said to be that you can confuse it with indifference, which looks like, which really is lacking the heart element. 
you know, and is lacking that care, or lacking the warmth of that uh, grandmother, right? And that's a, that's a traditional um, danger of developing equanimity that we can we can uh, be indifferent, which means we don't have the heart element and we don't have the responsive aspect. And so really crucial in developing equanimity to make sure that we have the heart element and the uh, action element or the responsiveness element. And so I'll say a little bit about those two and then we can open things up and have a little bit of discussion. So the uh, heart element is really brought forward very nicely in the traditional teaching of the different qualities of the heart, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And that, there, there are some very um, interesting aspects of the teaching. Some, a lot of you know this, I, I imagine. But two aspects are that each of these has its typical distortion. So I mentioned equanimity, the typical distortion is indifference. For compassion, the typical distortion is said to be pity. When you kind of have a distance place from someone who's suffering and basically say, I'm not like that, this poor person, right? And it has some degree of true compassion, but it's not, it doesn't really have, the, it's basically based on some degree of fear or distance or aversion. And loving kindness, the distortion would be being possessive. With, with the caring or the, or the kindness or the love. And so um, the other aspect of this teaching that's really interesting is that they, they're presented as a set and that to have mature maturity in each of these, you have to have all the other three integrated with it. So equanimity to be mature has to have aspects of loving kindness and compassion and joy. And so true equanimity is going to be joyful. Interesting. True equanimity is going to have some aspects of compassion. True equanimity is going to have care and kindness. And that's not always easy because equanimity tends to emphasize more the wisdom aspect. And I think in our culture, we often have a split between wisdom and the heart, between the mind and the heart. I think we know that in the culture. And then the um, other aspect that's really important is that equanimity needs to be responsive. And this is really connected with the caring aspect, that it's not indifferent, that equanimity has to have the responsive aspect. And again, in all of the people I interviewed related to um, being spiritually grounded yet acting in the world, they all found ways to combine equanimity, deep equanimity, with being deeply responsive. That, they, that this was really something I found with all of them. That it was, equanimity is not about being peaceful while the world burns, but it's actually developing peace and balance in the midst of whatever's happening. And you can see it's a really advanced quality. So maybe I'll just finish with the, uh, let me see where, this, where my poem was. I'll read my poem one more time, okay, to finish. And then we can have some discussion. Remain in equanimity, says the great teacher. Not so easy, though, for the mind to stand still. It jumps around, it shoots arrows. It seeks the strange refuge of reactive movement towards what it wants and away from what it doesn't want. So we train in seeing the jumping, the shooting, the reacting. Mindfulness of jumping does not jump. Mindfulness of shooting does not shoot. Mindfulness of reacting does not react. Isn't that interesting? Equanimity starts with the one moment of awareness and ends with awareness of the one and of the many moments. Let me start always again and remain at least a while in equanimity with the easy and the hard and the in-between with my body present. Equanimity as more than just a good idea. With my caring heart not left aside by my would-be equanimity. With my action not left behind still caught in indifference by my would-be equanimity still caught clinging to the peace, stillness, or understanding of equanimity, with my response to the suffering of our world, not left behind by my would-be equanimity, still caught in complacency or distance or privilege, while thinking of equanimity, balance, yet no one, no part of my life left behind. All of my days are in balance. 
So thank you. Thank you. You seem to listen to my talk with equanimity. <laughs> Good. So we can uh, take any reflections, questions, uh, comments of any kind. So we have uh, someone helps with the mic. Thank you. First of all, thank you for a wonderful talk. It was just um, so packed. Uh, really, really helpful. Um, so I wanted to, you had talked about um, listening. Uh, well, I guess my question is, I go back and forth about listening to the news. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I do. I thought uh, that might come up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I... I uh, generally am in my car and I'm listening to National Public Radio and I um, I do find that I, I get set off pretty easily. So right. sometimes I think it's just better not to listen to the news, um, just to wait and um, read the New York Times on Sunday and look, read more analytical articles and not just be whipped about by the tweet of the day. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, I do think it probably would be good to be able to listen to the news and not uh, uh, with equanimity. Yeah. So what do you think? What do I think? How many people can relate to that question? Okay. So a few thoughts. With any of our practices... We want to develop the quality of equanimity first where it's easier. So what you're describing could be called advanced practice. Listening to the news regularly (laughs) could be called advanced practice. And I don't know, probably could find some passage from the Buddha where he implicitly suggests that listening to the news... might be advanced practice, but it, 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 it is. So you can approach that in a few different ways. I think uh, generally um, it might be interesting actually to take it as a formal practice, right? And actually meditate before you either listen to the news or, you know, the same phenomenon can happen, you know, reading a paper in print or online and so forth. So actually take it as a formal practice that's helping you to develop equanimity, mindfulness, equanimity, and so forth. Do 10 minutes of practice before you listen to the news. You know, we've sometimes done that. I've, you know, I've done a few training programs for people combining inner practice with being in the world, and we've sometimes done that. We, you know, we uh, sometimes would have retreats where we uh, invite people to meditate, and then we tell them the news of the day. <laughs> You know, um, so you can, and I'm quite serious, you can take it as I, one thing I've never done at Spirit Rock is I've thought of it quite a few times is to actually have retreats where we watch the news every day. You know, I think that's actually, it's actually important, you know, for, because it is hard, right? So you want to bring some intentionality, in other words, to it, not just, the, you know, okay, news, okay, but bring some intentionality, do some sitting, and again, you want to and study it. Take it, have it be actually part a very explicit part of your practice. And then, uh, if you get knocked around overly, turn it off and watch your mind. You can turn off the news and watch what's going with your mind. I think it's actually it could be very, very fruitful. Maybe you do it with uh, some people here who are a friend or to have a group of you who do this and then check in with each other. Talk about it because I think doing this. Not in isolation is important, right? And, and then I think it's not helpful just to be reactive over and over again. So if you're listening to the news and you're just in reactivity, I don't think that's helpful. So come back to it when it's helpful. And, you know, it could be what I found in my own experience was that, uh, you know, I did a retreat in March and I came to the conclusion that I was actually, I mean, I think many of us do this. We sort of somewhat compulsively check the news. I knew I do. I mean, I, I listen to, you know, I go to the New York Times website. And I also, I mean, I'm just coming back from Israel, Palestine, you know, as you 
the day after I left Israel, there was violence in Jerusalem where I had been a lot, not far from where I was. And I was really checking the uh, Israeli press websites a lot, right? And I think, but what I found in my own experience is that we somewhat obsessively get the news. And, and you can really ask yourself, what is a wise amount of news to get? I found that when I asked that question, I took in probably three times as much as I really, as really was wise, as I really needed. I could get, I could get a very good sense of the news, and the rest of it, there was something compulsive happening, and maybe, and because there is something addictive about all this, isn't there? Even if it's negative, right? <laughs> and so I think look into that. So that's probably we have a lot of probably wisdom here in the room, but I'll I'll stop there. With that, yeah, thank you. It's a great question. Any reflections, questions, comments about equanimity, yeah, or about anything that came up? Hi. Uh, I just had a thought, and maybe this isn't really very Buddhist, and maybe it's more kind of psychological. In terms of balance, let's yeah. say you're in a situation or a conversation or whatever, and something gets triggered in you that is like, Oh, like something from your past or yeah. a past situation, and it sort of you respond. A L- little closer that, to your mouth. Not what is real. Yeah. Or what you know? What is really happening? Yeah. But more something internal. Yeah. So it seems to me that if you don't understand those things about yourself, I don't think you can have balance. Yeah, I think so. Really, uh, really, really good point that. Um, all of us have certain patterns of conditioning that are deep and that we are not fully aware of, right? And they can be, I, I see this a lot when I teach on working with the judgmental mind because most of us have some self-judgments or self-judgments of others. Some part of ourselves feels I'm not okay, I'm not good enough, or it could be different, different kinds of conditioning, but that's, uh, you know, uh, from teaching on that a lot, that's it, it's virtually in everyone, some version of that, and it gets triggered by certain things. It might might not be triggered so commonly, but it does get triggered. And when you're in the grip of that, you're lost, basically. You know, you're lost, and so it can be very important to work with that. Actually, I you know I gave a talk at Spirit Rock yesterday, the second talk I gave on some of my experiences in Israel Palestine, and I. I actually proposed, not, I'm not the only one to say this, but I propose that a large part of what's happening there can be understood as two traumatized people acting out because they haven't adequately, you know, and it's not a symmetrical situation. One side has a lot more power of different kinds. So it's not s- simply symmetrical, but you have two traumatized people who are at the mercy of the patterns of their own trauma. You know, of their own unresolved pain, uh, and uh, and so it is very difficult, if not impossible, to be balanced in those situations. So I think that's I think it's a very important point that, uh, and I think you can more or less find the similar point. I mean, Western psychology gives us more insight into some of the specific patterns, like judgment or trauma and so forth, but. The point is right there in the old teachings, which is that uh, when we are uh, reactive, we can't be present. Yeah. When we are, and I, I'm using reactive as almost a translation of the word dukkha. I prefer reactivity as a translation of dukkha rather than suffering, because I think it's a little suffering is confusing as a translation, because. You know, we're we're not we're trying to overcome reactivity. We're not trying to get rid of it, of the unpleasant. And for in English, there's not a clear distinction between pain and suffering. So so we sometimes think, what does it mean to get rid of suffering? You know, I'm always going to sometimes have a stubbed toe or you know, a emotional pain. We're not trying to get rid of that. We are trying to get rid of the reaction and resistance to experience, which has these two forms, grasping and pushing away. I like reactivity better also because it points to the two forms and suffering doesn't. It just points to the uh, pushing away, the negative. Anyway, that little little 
uh, digression there. Okay, so, but I think it's a very good point and we, I think part of our practice is to look at our deep patterns of reactivity, yeah. So maybe last one and then we'll, yeah, I think, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's actually reassuring to know that the news is all fake anyway. The what? The news is all fake. So, <laughs> so we can kind of think about it that way maybe. But uh, the, my, my, my real question is, um, doesn't this all really relate to the fundamental thing about attachment? Well, uh, does, yeah, I mean, um, attachment is a, man, is a manifestation of reactivity. It's the grasping. It's the same thing, more or less. So what I'm calling reactivity and what I'm saying that, you know, that... Um, uh, that there are these two forms. One is grasping, which is linked with attachment, and the, the, uh, the other is the pushing away, which is linked with aversion. And those are the, those are the two forms of reactivity. And that's, you know, all of the things that take us away from being present fall in one of those two groups. And, and if you wanted to simplify, you could say that uh, even the... Uh, uh, even the pushing away could be said to be a form of grasping after, you know, things being peaceful, calm, etc. So yeah, I think that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, was there anyone else who that was a little short? Anyone else who had who had wanted to say something before we finished for the evening? Okay. Well, it just occurred to me that um, humor could be very useful with equanimity, and I don't know if you agree. Say, say. It occurred little to me closer that, to your mouth. that humor could oh, be humor. very useful oh, yeah. in developing equanimity. Humor, uh, very helpful. Um, yeah, yeah, because uh, equanimity has certain qualities. One of them is spaciousness, and I didn't mention that. But uh, that could have been one of the qualities I named. And humor of the non-targeting kind, <laughs> of the non-making you know, making fun of others kind, we have, that's an important point, um, is very connected with spaciousness. When we have humor about something, uh, there's spaciousness, almost like on the level of the body or the energy. And so, uh, you know, humor can really help us to have equanimity because it, it basically we don't take things quite so seriously. And so, um, yeah, very, very much the case. And uh, probably if you look at people who are have a lot of equanimity, you'll find that humor can play a big role. Or even you think of, you know, I was thinking, again, i thinking of someone like Dr. King. He had quite a bit of humor, right? And you think of people in pretty hairy situations, you know, where I was thinking, you know, what just came to mind was, uh, um, I, know, I, I know this is in the tradition of James's love of sports. That's partly why I mentioned the Warriors and the, you know, Israeli newspaper and so forth. But I remember that, uh, you know, uh, I remember this incident from one of the first of the uh, 49ers championships that Joe Montana was in the huddle with the players, and there was crucial. They had they had to uh, the, the game was almost over, and they had to um, they had to uh, have a drive the whole length of the field and score, or they wouldn't win, right? And Joe Montana was in the huddle, and he he looked around and he saw. He saw the uh, comedian John Candy in the stands, and he said, "Hey, look! There's John Candy." And everyone broke up, and it totally relaxed them, and they went on and won because <laughs> it gave them more equanimity. Because same thing in sports: if you're really tight, you're not going to perform well. And so you have that. The humor gave them more balance, more equanimity, and it 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 permitted more close to peak performance. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Did you have one? I, I'm conscious we're at the end of the time. One word. Acceptance. Acceptance. Um, 
What I found from working a lot with that intersection of inner work and social change is that the word acceptance is ambiguous. And we have to distinguish between two meanings of acceptance. One of it means the kind of acceptance that we cultivate in our practice is acceptance, yes, this is really happening, and I'm not going to try to deny that this is happening. I'm really pissed off at that horse, and I'm not going to try to hide that. I accept that I'm pissed off, okay? That's one kind of acceptance. There's another, another kind of acceptance. I accept that things are, you know, okay the way they are. Or I accept that things are, you know, you know, if things are, I accept that this is the way it is and that's the way it'll be. And someone like Dr. King would have acceptance of racism in the first sense. Yes, I accept this is real. I'm not going to make believe it's not here, but not acceptance that this should stay this way. And so I found that ambiguity with the word acceptance and it gets confusing in Buddhist circles when people don't make that distinction because it's, does that make some sense that they're both meanings in the English language? Yeah, yeah, it's important. And maybe even in the spirit of uh, this traditional practice with which we end, and I, I put my hands together, you can do this if you wish or not. Um, we offer the benefits of our practice of our evening to ourselves, to everyone in this hall, and then beyond the boundaries of the hall, out to others, out to all other beings, so that ultimately we offer the benefits of our evening, of our practice, to all beings, recognizing that we are part of all beings, that all beings includes us. So thank you and hope to uh, continue and meet with you in other places, maybe back here another time soon. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.